Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, the podcast in which we go under the hood or the bonnet, if you're in the UK, of the debt capital markets and poke around to see how things work or maybe don't work. And it's the not working part we're focusing on this week as we take a look at the commercial real estate market and its many current ailments. And to do so, we're welcoming Rich Byrne, who is president of Benefit Street Partners, the alternative investment manager that was acquired by Franklin Templeton just before the pandemic and continues to be an influential player in many areas of the credit market, including private credit, CLOs, and leveraged loans, which is what Ninefin is, all of which Ninefin is primarily focused on. So without further ado, welcome, Rich. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. Do you want to give a quick introduction on Benefit Street Partners and sort of set the scene of the credit markets more broadly before we dive into real estate? Uh, absolutely. You did a much uh, more concise job than... <laughs> and probably conveyed as much information as I will, but we're about a $75 billion alternative asset manager. All we do is credit, corporate credit and real estate credit. Think of it that way. You name some of the asset classes that we focus on. We're owned by Franklin Templeton. That's about five years now. Um, we made an acquisition one year ago for your UK uh, listeners of a firm I'm sure many people are familiar with, Alcentra. Alcentra basically does everything we do, mm -hmm. uh, but they do it in Europe. We do it in the United States. Um, so having the global perspective is super helpful. They do everything we do with one exception, uh, real estate lending. That right. has been the purview of Benefit Street Partners. It's about $10 billion of our AUM. And just for the spoiler alert, I think uh, it's fair to say it is the number one opportunity, I think, on a relative value basis that um, we see at this moment you know, across our platform. Before we go on, just got a quick message from our sponsor, which is Ninefin. Um, I know that sounds ridiculous, but we probably don't talk enough around here about how Ninefin is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a whole AI-powered news and data platform covering the debt capital markets. And we've got a very exciting new product to share with you, which is our CLO and structured credit offering. This new vertical gives you exclusive up-to-date news on the CLO market and world-leading expert analysis. And all of this is served up through a slick, modern data platform, which is fast, intuitive, and super easy to use. And basically, it gives you everything you need to make faster and better decisions, helping simplify your workflow and ultimately to win more business. So head to ninefin.com slash insights to try it out for free or drop us an email at subscriptions at ninefin.com. Anyway, let's get back to this week's episode where Rich had just mentioned real estate. Okay, so that's a good lead in to what we're going to discuss today, which is real estate and commercial real estate in particular. And I know there's more to real estate than just commercial real estate. And there's more to commercial real estate than just office space, which is where a lot of the distress is, obviously. But just to set the scene, real estate has been the subject of a lot of debate lately. And there's a lot of talk about it being a sort of generational or once in a lifetime opportunity for investors, especially credit investors. But it's, this, it's, it's almost such a big, scary thing um, that it sometimes feels like people are talking about it a lot, but not actually coming up with real solutions. So in the spirit of breaking down a big, scary problem into digestible parts, Rich, what I want to ask you first is what do you see as the fundamental problem with the commercial real estate market right now? And, and when I say commercial real estate, I really mean the office right. market right now. Okay, so I think I can give you a interesting perspective on the answer to this question for a couple of reasons. One is because we have a deep dive focus on commercial real estate, but we have it from a lender's perspective. And I think um, 
I think that that sort of brings out some you know certain aspects of the market. The other is that we do it from a platform of credit and always thinking about relative value, corporate credit, real estate credit, and there are important similarities and differences between the markets that um, I gave you the leading statement of, of this being one of the best opportunities we're seeing. Mm-hmm. There's a reason I said that. And and uh, so we're going to do a little comparing and contrasting okay. as we go through the story. But um, uh, uh, whether you're a lender or a real estate property, hard asset investor, yeah, office is a four-letter word now. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they should change it and take off the last two letters and make it four letters. Um, because... Uh, um, but that's not the only problem that's gone on in real estate. It's the same problem that has gone across the credit markets and all asset classes. It's the dramatic and quick rise of interest rates. Mm-hmm. Real estate, more so than corporate credit, um, sort of uh, adjusts or prices are correlated to interest rates in a much higher degree. I mean, there's just many more factors at stake for a corporation, you know, and how they make their money. Mm-hmm. Real estate is simple. It's 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 sort of derived through a cap rate. Very simple math. Uh, cap rates go higher, property values go lower. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that will move a cap rate is, is changes in interest rates. Your cost of debt goes up, you make less money, therefore your property is worth less. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Um, rates went from a near zero you know, base rate market for the lending rate we use or, you know, or, or any measure you look at to uh, over 5%, um, you know, depending on what you're looking at, the 10-year, you know, the day you're looking at it. But the the rise has been dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at simply a multifamily product, which has been one of the best performing asset class other than self-storage or some of the, some of the other um, uh, more resilient sectors, um, that has led to about a one-turn change in cap rate. Mm-hmm. So if cap rates were mid fours, they're mid fives now on average, let's say for the some conglomeration of, of Class A, Class B, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that would equate just mathematically to about a twenty percent change in values. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, a multifamily asset yesterday was yesterday being a year, year and a half ago, was probably worth twenty percent more than it is today. Yeah. Okay. So that's true for all these asset classes, including office. Office hit the double whammy though. Mm-hmm. The double whammy for office, as we know, you don't. Nobody, your viewers don't. Listeners don't need me to tell you, is the you know secular change to work from home uh, three days a week, four days a week, no days a week yeah. um, for the office has led to, um, you know, I would hate to use the word to overdramatize this, but I think it's fair to say a cataclysmic uh, or tectonic shift in in how office properties are valued. All I mean, office is not the same, yeah. but um, that 20% decline is a starting number, and then you go into the change in demand right. uh, for many office buildings, um, and you know that's your sort of starting rate, and it goes doubles, triples from there as far as uh, you know what office properties are worth. Right. Well, now is probably a good time to mention that we're recording this in a WeWork. Um, so, you know, prime example, I don't know if there's a better example, really, like a household name, and it's just been absolutely decimated by all of the things you just talked about. Yeah, some of the dramatic, you know, the, 
the the uh, the the dramatic rise in you know office uh, valuations in New York and some of the bigger cities specifically was almost single handedly caused by right. you know rework rework is you know the biggest the biggest renter you know across most of these markets mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, now we're seeing that all unravel in dramatic form, you know, right. more recently. But yeah, the best example, I, I that's not true all over the country. And I'm sure we'll go into it. But um, suburban office is probably worst off of, of everything. I mean, not to randomly pick cities, but, mm. you know, Peoria, Peoria, Illinois, just like um, there's office properties that don't have an alternative use that, mm. you know, probably end up being or probably land value. Right. Land right, value right. minus the cost to demolish the building, which is probably less than, you know, it's obviously less than land value. Yeah. The phrase white elephant comes to mind. It's like, right. You know, purpose built, purpose designed, and, and there's not really much else that you can use it for. It's the, it's not really modular kind of space that can be repurposed no. somehow. I mean, in a big city like New York, as we've seen in, in Florida, you can repurpose, you know, we've, the, the go-to answer of why their office property is going to be fine is repurposing it into, you know, multifamily or, mm. or condos or, or whatever it is. Uh, that does apply to some properties, but uh, is definitely not a wholesale answer to solve this problem. Right. Very right. specific and often very expensive, prohibitively so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of zoning issues and that kind of thing that come into it. It gets kind of almost political at a point. But your Peoria, Illinois office building probably doesn't have an alternative. Probably its alternative use is a park. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could always do with more parks, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to bring it back to credit, um, you know, you set the scene very well of, of how dramatic this uh, this downturn is in, in the office market. Where can the credit markets help in terms of addressing this distress, or I guess some might say kind of profiting from it, depending on how you want to, how you want to kind of, uh, how you yeah. want to word it. So, well, I think it's funny. We're the least popular um, investor investment story during most normal times. You know, if people have a, it, well, no, a real estate lender. Right. Okay. People yeah. will, will, will go to nine out of 10 meetings. They'll say, oh, that's great. You, you're a real estate lender. We're, we're more interested in buying those sexy, you know, cool, mm-hmm. cool buildings and those properties. Much more interesting to most people. Um, now, uh, the best story, uh, one person's view or our, our, our house view is lending. I mean, we're literally earning double digit yields unlevered. Mm-hmm. You know, with with the use of leverage, which we use across our vehicles, uh, we're talking about 15 to 20 percent returns as a lender. Wow. Um, and um, so it can both be a hazard and an opportunity at the same time. I think where it's really treacherous, I talked about the tectonic shift, is where you have an existing portfolio. Mm-hmm. OK, if you had a portfolio um and, you know, ignore office for a second, but like some blend of different asset classes, you know, those assets are worth less now than they were before. So if you were lending as a 70% loan to value lender, you know, if your assets went down by 20%, you know, those are on average 85% loan to value. They're riskier loans today. Mm-hmm. But the new loans we're making are now recalibrated based on, you know, the higher rates and different cap rates to be new entry points of 70% loan to value. So think about it. We have um, uh, your asset would literally have to go down more than double, more than not double, excuse me, more than half of what it was at, you know, before the repricing, Mm -hmm. you know, based on the old values to to get to an impairment. 
Uh-huh. So, you know, that's how you think about it. The the If you have a portfolio of good assets, they're probably 85% loan to value. If you have an office in there, you may even be over 100, you know, in other words, underwater. Uh, new loans are, you know, you're making new loans at 70% loan to value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like And like I said, that's an adjusted loan to value for for that decline that you've already calibrated right. that the market has adjusted. So I guess the the obvious question then is how much further do valuations have to fall, right? Well, they've moved they've moved a lot. Um, uh, multifamily. So we mostly lend to multifamily. Mm-hmm. We have not historic. I don't think we've made an office loan in over three four years. Uh, thankfully, we have a public mortgage read. I think we have the lowest office exposure in you know the the entire public space. At, six percent um uh i think office still has a way to go because i think that that just plays out over time Mm -hmm. you know tenants leases run out and then you know to 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 retenant a building is very expensive we work renegotiates its leases well it's (laughs) just incredibly expensive Um, i mean we've seen examples for 25 dollar a foot you know buildings um you know rental uh, where, you know, you'd have to give TI packages to a new buyer to entice them to come in and maybe four or five times that. Mm-hmm. So just for the, uh, for the general reader, TI being tenant improvement, right. is certain allowance to make changes to the building. Right. So in other words, to keep these buildings fill is going to be an expensive proposition. Yeah. If you own office buildings yeah. okay. in the wrong office buildings in the wrong places, um, that's expensive. Um, but you know, for, for something like, so how, for office, I think this is this. Unfortunately, this story is going to play out over. You know, it's it's a secular change. I think it's going to play out over a longer period of time, irrespective of interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the multifamily problem is purely around interest rates. Um, uh, we're also seeing a big build period now of you know new capacity coming online, which scares a lot of people. They think, oh, that's going to you know add competition across the market. But remember, for multifamily, there's a number of things that are super positive. Mm -hmm. Number one is houses are not affordable Yeah. right now. Um, uh, Yeah, I was was actually going to say at the start, like the the point you made about interest rates and LTVs and cap rates, it's very relatable for people. Anyone who's been in the kind of residential property market and has been maybe looking at taking out a mortgage to buy a house lately. Like it's a very different ball game now to what it was three or four years ago. Yeah, it's double Yeah, or more. Um, so number one, number two, there aren't a lot of sellers of properties because I don't think people are ready to to take the pain of the new valuation for, 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 for their bill. So renting, you know, becomes a, a, a really it, the only proposition, you know, for many people. Also, the same reason that office became that four letter word is because people are working from home. Well, mm. that means you need a home mm-hmm. to work from. I mean, everybody sleeps somewhere, but I think you have to make sure you live in a place that's suitable for conducting your business. So, um, you know, usually that's an up, up ticket from you know, where many people are. The, the other thing about um, uh, is that the government agencies are still lending to multifamily. They're, they're not fair weather lenders. Like the banks, maybe, you know, uh, there isn't a bank making a loan right now, in maybe across most of real estate, but certainly to office. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in multifamily, you you have the government agencies that are, are lenders. So I think for a variety of reasons, uh, multifamily is a more interesting, a more resilient story. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
talking about that bubble of capacity, that kind of all comes online over the next couple of years. Uh, we talked about it on our earnings call. Um, uh, the head of our real estate group sort of made the point, and you know, he's been uh, it's been quoted a, a bunch of times, but. Um, push out to 2025 after that bubble of, of, of construction and that capacity, all those cranes you see in a lot of the cities that are growing. Um, when that stops, I think there's going to be a pretty good argument for massive increases in, in rent rolls and, you know, ultimately valuations of, of, of multifamily. So for us, multifamily has been the easiest answer. Mm -hmm. Avoid office multifamily. There right. will be an entry point for office, but I think it's for the most best capitalized buyers right. who have uh, the kahunas, for lack of a better word, uh -huh. to, uh, you know, because you may not get the timing just right. Right, right, right. And you sort of have to have the capital to back it up while you're waiting. Well, yes, yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, the leveraged credit markets um, are not typically accustomed to or, or set up for lending to real estate. Obviously, you guys have, a, you know, you have real estate funds and, and whatnot. And it's a, an area of focus for you. Um, but for example, some private credit firms that have been mostly focused on corporate senior lending are now turning towards private credit and they're hiring a lot of people to kind of focus on, on that opportunity. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you, where do you see capital being most effective in this situation when we're talking about office, right? You, you've outlined the, the multifamily opportunity very clearly, but there's a lot of um, opportunities in, in office space. Uh, I think about some of the companies in the, in the leveraged credit space that we cover, for example, Cushman and Wakefield, Avison Young, those kind of firms have, you know, huge exposure to office space, for example, other parts of commercial real estate as, as well, but a lot of office space, you know, a lot of them are, are kind of struggling a little bit, Avison Young in particular you know, trading at kind of distressed levels right now, where's the opportunity? Is it lending to those firms on a kind of corporate lending basis? Is it lending directly to property owners? Is it opportunistically buying tranches of CMBS or multifamily RMBS or, well, I guess multifamily RMBS would be CMBS, but you know what I mean? Like where, where do you, where is your entry point? Well, let me give you a, a menu of what, what I think are the most and least interesting places to invest right now. Mm -hmm. um, I made the case, as you said, multifamily lending, not necessarily as a buyer, but as a lender to multifamily. I think you're just you're just getting a, a enormous margin for error, mm -hmm. and this will probably be looked back as one of the best vintages for lending with a little leverage. As I said, you know, we can earn fifteen to twenty percent returns. Right. I don't think it's as a lender to office. I think if you're gonna you're gonna take that plunge and invest in office, I think you just never can get paid enough as a lender. Uh, you might as well you know, buy properties outright. And as I mm -hmm. started saying earlier, I think uh, you better have the capital to back up that strategy. Right. Because office to retenant office is just can be very expensive. And I think you, it you, takes somebody you, with some real wherewithal. Yeah. And office buildings, um, I mean, you could build a nice portfolio of, of multifamily and some garden apartments around, you know, Sunbelt. And, you know, you're not talking about major tickets. I mean, you know, for mm -hmm. a big investment firm, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollars. Office buildings, you know, especially in big cities where you'd probably want to be. Uh, those ticket sizes are much bigger, and as I said, the the uh, price to retenant buildings is just, it's just prohibitively expensive. So it's on top of the initial investment, you've got to have 
capital and reserve to pay things like tenant improvement. Exactly. Kind of like, you've got to spend money to make money. Obviously. you got to spend money. I think you'll see situations where there'll be blocks where there'll be a building that's, you know, 70, 80, 90% office building occupied on the other side of the street. Maybe the owner wasn't as strategic or didn't have the bankroll mm. and they'll be completely empty. Right. right. Um, and, and I think it'll be the haves and the have nots because I'm not suggesting there's no space. There's no demand across the entire country for office. Right. Of course there will be, but I think it'll be the, the players that are, you know, know what they're doing that have the capital to back it up. Mm -hmm. The other place for that, I think the opportunity exists is in construction lending, especially to multifamily again. Okay. Um, why do I say that? Because banks, banks are smarting. Um, you know, they have portfolios. Yeah, I don't know what depends on the bank, but, you know, some numbers that I've seen, I can't substantiate, but um, 25, 30 percent of that is office. Mm. Um, you know, the whole portfolio took a hit, but to the extent a third of it or whatever is a quarter or a third of it is office. Banks have, you know, have some big unrealized losses that, you know, they may need to crystallize. So most banks aren't making new loans. Mm -hmm. um, most of the peer group that we compete against with our, we have a publicly traded commercial mortgage rate, FBRT, New York Stock Exchange. Many of the firms that we compete against are, haven't made a new loan in multiple quarters. Mm -hmm. um, these are some of the biggest lenders. Um, you know, we will make construction loans. It's not necessarily uh, our core business, I think. Uh, but the fact that we're getting apps for, you know, construction loans because, you know, they can't find other lenders is, I think, sp speaks volumes about, you know, the dearth of capital out there to finance, you know, uh, commercial real estate. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we're all, you, know, you can almost sort of write your own terms on some of these deals because, mm -hmm. you know, you're sort of the you're the lender where, where there are no others. So it's funny because what you're describing is kind of the opposite to what some people might say is going on in, for example, corporate private credit, like senior lending, direct lending, unitrans lending, whatnot right now, which is there's all this dry powder. These firms have spent years amassing it and kind of building their reputation as, as firms that are sort of displacing the, the broadly syndicated loan market and the investment banks that arrange those deals. Um, and they've got all this capital to deploy and all of a sudden there's this slowdown in M&A and the kind of origination supply just isn't there. So you've got all these firms chasing a few assets and the borrower can not write their own terms, but they can they can kind of play lenders off off one another a little it's sort of flipped on its head in the real estate market, the way you describe it. It is. Uh, but let's go deeper on that because this to me is a subject of a whole separate right. podcast or uh, <laughs> a topic and it's a really interesting one because there are some important differences between the two markets mm. let's talk about the similarities you're lending um to a building or you're lending to a company mm -hmm. um they're floating rate loans um and uh um those similarities are very important. What mm. are the differences? A real estate loan is generally at about a 70% loan to value. We're doing corporate lending, middle market, or even some of the broadly syndicated loans at 40 to 50% loan to value. Right, right. So you have a lot more margin for error. Uh, the average tenor or maturity of a, um, of a loan, a corporate loan, let's call it private credit loan, is usually about seven years. And right. the real estate side, the loans that we're making, because we're making the floating rate sort of transitional loan, um, is usually three years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the biggest difference is there's no such thing as office, right? right? Thankfully, <laughs> in corporate lending. So you don't have that 25, 30% cohort that is down, you know, these immeasurable amounts in some cases. So you don't have that, that tail uh, to the story that, mm. that, that, that is really screwing things up. Well, I was going to say, uh, we're getting off topic here slightly, but like if, if you had to pick a sector within the kind of leveraged credit market, the corporate leveraged credit markets, uh, that is the kind of equivalent of office space in real estate, maybe highly levered software companies. Yeah. You know, kind of in, in the run up to the pandemic and, and then, you know, in the start of the pandemic, the timeline is slightly different to real estate. Um, but, you know, they had a sort of stratospheric time and then catastrophic or yeah. cataclysmic, to use your word, kind of um, downdraft in, in valuations um, and a lot of the same problems, i.e. sitting on a big pile of floating rate debt that just gets more and more expensive as time goes on and valuation is de decreasing on, on the other side. I think that's right. Um, all software is not the same. You mm -hmm. know, some some is more wing and a prayer. I thought it, some... all, it all tastes like chicken, according to Robert Smith. Oh, I didn't hear that. Um, <laughs> that's funny. But uh, it's not all the same. Uh, but, you know, our our investment thesis uh, across, you know, our firm, at least, is we like to invest in things that have existing, predictable um, and stable cash flow, not just cash flow, free cash flow. So mm -hmm. you're not just spending your money to to maintain it. Right. Um, and you're not relying on hockey stick curves and valuations or in, in projection increases. Software can sometimes fit that description. Mm -hmm. Plus, a lot of those deals, when they got done, got done with EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA or EBITDA addbacks. Right. So you take yeah. a company with, I don't know, 15 million of EBITDA, but it was being sold as a $50 million EBITDA company mm -hmm. because of all the things they were going to do that, you know, they just easy math. Oh, we're going to consolidate this. We're going to do that. And, you know, look at all the EBITDA we're going to have. And, you know, that's the froth of a market when things get overheated. Mm -hmm. And that's what you saw. So I think, yeah, software or tech in general, you know, can certainly get caught up in that, but nowhere near the size right. or magnitude of what you're seeing in office. Yeah. But um, I'll just give you an example. The uh, average commercial mortgage rate, our peer group for the company that we run, uh, trades at approximately 70% of its book value. 70% mm -hmm. okay. of its book value. The average BDC, which is the corporate, cor corporate lending, lending equivalent yeah. to the commercial mortgage rate, BDC lends to companies, commercial mortgage rate lends to buildings or developers that own buildings, um, uh, is 90% of book right. value. Yeah. So uh, why did one adjust so much and the other didn't? I think for some of the reasons I'm mentioning. And one of them is office and the other is those, those loans were three-year maturity. So you're going to see the next two years, every quarter, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole with yeah. the commercial mortgage rates of... Mm -hmm. It's usually going to be office, but what what building did they have to take the keys back, and you know what's it really worth? Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to see that. Whereas the corporate lending, uh, there's so much volume done post COVID and uh, end of 20, but mostly 21, 22, that those maturities are five years off. Yeah, and that's before you account for the sort of below the table extensions and amendments and covenant waivers and whatnot that lenders could do in the private credit market, which. Right. Uh, subject to so, more scrutiny and they're kind of so i think markets. there's you're exactly right so i think there's a lot of cracks beneath the surface but they're just going to play out over and if right. rates end up who knows but if rates end up coming down mm. maybe you maybe you got saved by just having 
bought more time because your maturity schedule right. was a little longer. But it ignores the fundamental principle. Just because it's worse for existing portfolios in real estate doesn't mean it's not bad or not treacherous for private credit. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental issue for private credit, ignoring that we could have a recession and, or exogenous two wars going on, ignoring all that stuff, is the rise in interest rates. Mm -hmm. um, so the rise in interest rates, if you underwrote a loan in your investment committee in 2021, um, the average loan would have had a interest coverage of 2.6 times. At least that's the data that we've, we've run. Um, if that company never changed, fast forward to today, let's say the cash flow and the characteristics of the country, company didn't change, but you just adjust for the higher base rate because uh, it's floating rate loan. That SOFR was on average 50, 75 basis points when you made the loan. It's five or so percent now. Mm -hmm. That interest coverage drops to about one and a half times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 2.6 to one and a half. One and a half is not defaulting. But boy, did that give you a lower margin for error in a portfolio theory. I, 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 it's hard to argue that that won't result in a greater number of defaults. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not what you want. I mean, it's, it's, ne it's never want. what you want from the outset. And I feel like people have had to readjust their expectations for what is baseline or what is acceptable nowadays. You know, if, if your yeah. entire portfolio is within, you know, a few basis points of, you know, 2% interest coverage, then you've got to kind of accept that that's your new reality, right? Right, and a recession will push a number of those companies off the edge. Otherwise, mm. they're just idiosyncratic risk of a, there'll always be some bottom 10, 15% that don't perform, right. maybe below, uh, cash flow below the level of their interest. Mm -hmm. The ultimate true up is maturity. As I said, maturity isn't the biggest issue these days because the maturity wall for most corporate lenders, if you look at those, we always like to create bar charts for when the maturities oh, yeah. are across our <laughs> portfolio. And for a corporate portfolio or private credit, uh, BDC, you know, the bars are relatively short over 24, 23 now, 24, 25. And then they start to get bigger after that. Mm. Um, for those real estate lenders, it's 24 and 25. Yeah. So that's probably a good point to end on. This sort of accelerated feedback loop in, in real estate that you're talking about compared to corporate um, corporate credit. That kind of means that we're going to see who the winners are and who the losers are a little bit more quickly. Um, so, I mean, this is a broad question and it's somewhat tongue in cheek. Um, but if you had to pick one region or city for commercial real estate to outperform, and there's various nuances you might want to inject into your answer in terms of which part of commercial real estate you're talking about, what do you think it would be? Like, do you think the big coastal centers like New York City and San Francisco will continue to kind of be dominant in the long term or do you think this is a moment for some of these kind of smaller regional hubs to kind of uh to sort of you know have their time in the sun as it were it's a really good question i'd love to give you a black and white answer but it's so <laughs> nuanced yeah um yeah. Uh, i think as you've heard the repeated theme here today we're not buyers we're not lenders to office anyway. uh and we just don't have the mandate or the enormous amount of capital, I think, required to, to make that bet on the equity side. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, and clearly some cities, some of the suburban offices are going to be worse of all, you know, San Francisco, Portland, I mean, mm -hmm. that's some of the terrible right. spots. Uh, so take office off the table. I think if you're a lender to multifamily, I think uh, select hospitality, mm -hmm. um, 
industrial, uh, even select retail. I think you want to be across the Sun Belt. You know, mm -hmm. that smile across the country, uh, Florida, the Carolinas, Arizona, Texas. And why is that? Why that region? Because that's where people want to live. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about multifamily. Uh, uh -huh. You know, you want to go where people want to live. Is this connected to you know aging populations and that kind of thing? And work from home. It also makes me think of the the, the sort of migration of finance types to Miami and yeah, and, you know Austin and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm right. just an observer <laughs> of 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 what's been going on over the last few years. But if you're not working in your office, you can live anywhere you want. What's what's tying you to the city that you once lived in? You mm -hmm. know, if it's an urban you know, cold weather city, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so that's why we've seen property values and, you know, mass migration to some of the places that, that we mentioned. Do you think that's here to stay though? Like the, the work from home thing being, be, being the thing that enables people to pick up and move wherever they want, because you've seen a lot of the big banks, for example, kind of calling MDs back in five days a week. Some of the big tech firms kind of reversing policies about remote first, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not a sociologist, but um, from what we've observed is, first of all, our firm is three days a week in the office. We're clearly going to go to four. Mm -hmm. um, but do you ever go to five? I, I mean, I just think there, uh, the analogy I would use first time, I'll try it out on you, is the fox in the hen house. Uh -huh. Once you get the taste of, you know. Chicken. <laughs> you can't, you know. So I think there's just some things you can't go back to. Right, right. Um, so it's not going to be zero. I, ironically, you know, we run a globe. We don't have a real estate lending business in Europe, but mm -hmm. you know, having observed it, Europeans are 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 back four or five days. We're three four days here. I mean, who would have guessed? You know, in Europe that that's it's a more. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't want to say this politically. No, it, correctly, I know what you mean. It doesn't fit the stereotype, right? No. It's, yeah. um, and I think part of the reason is the social element to mm -hmm. it. You mm -hmm. know, uh, the Parisians can't sit and have you know a, a, a nice lunch and gather if nobody's in the office they're all you know sitting in their their home somewhere so i i think yeah. that there's a social aspect to it too so i think there's a lot of things that will play out over time i just don't think we'll ever get back to where we were mm -hmm. yeah it's that civic duty to keep your city centers alive you know food vendors cafes whatnot yeah that kind of thing um okay cool all right well we covered a lot of ground in a relatively short space of time there um, and we talk quickly yeah <laughs> Well, thank you so much, though. Uh, that was really fascinating, and, and thanks for thanks for joining us in one of the best examples of distress in the in the real estate sector. Absolutely, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Will. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Rich, and thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can always email us at team at ninefin.com, or you can find us on social media. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks in the US, but don't forget to check in with our European colleagues next week. So until next time, as always, take care.